Welcome to the Connectomics podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. My guest this week is Dr. Fred Cummins. Fred is a linguist. He's a lecturer and researcher presently in the School of Computer Science in UCD, Dublin, Ireland. Fred is someone with whom I have quite a long history, as I guess will become apparent in the conversation. But just to kind of give you some of the background there, Fred was my PhD supervisor. Before that, he was my master supervisor and also assisted me through the whole application for the PhD. So we have a long history of intellectual engagement together and maybe as a warning um, for this conversation, there is some degree to which this conversation is an extension of a an ongoing conversation. Um, with that in mind, maybe we get into some things a bit too hastily. I mean, you can be the judge of that, but upon reflection... Some of it seems like we jumped in at the deep end. Um, I do think we both make some effort to check ourselves and come back around to establishing some of the foundations, but um, certainly that tendency exists there. To say a bit about Fred, so I think Fred is definitely somebody who really embodies, much like my previous guest, Tom Froze, um, is somebody who really embodies the spirit of cognitive science. You're as likely to encounter Fred um, producing some piece of art that's illustrative of some idea he's been working on as you are to find him working on some mathematical formalism that he's trying to get the better of or a piece of code that's maybe been getting the better of him. Fred is also well-versed in disciplines as wide and varied as religious studies, linguistics, computer science, cognitive science, philosophy, anthropology, psychology. Fred really does run the gamut. I think, as you'll hear in our conversation, Fred is quite an idiosyncratic thinker. He's also a very, very careful thinker. And the breadth of his concerns really does show up in the way he approaches his thinking and his scientific practice. When I'm in conversation with Fred, historically and certainly true in this occasion too, um, I typically feel like I'm somewhere, if not on the edge of my thinking, out past it. And uh, 
I think that's very generative for me as a interlocutor with Fred. Um, but I wonder how well it comes across as something to be listened in upon. You'll be the judge of that. Um, this was also the first podcast I did in this series, so even though I'm releasing it now, I think my skills as a, as a podcaster have probably grown even in that time. Um, nevertheless, for those of you who feel that the conversation does get into the long grass a bit too hastily, um, or maybe you're new to this topic area in general, um, I would invite you to give this podcast a few listens, maybe come back to it in a month's time or a couple of months' time. I've um, came back to it, I think, two or three times since having first recorded it. And despite having known Fred and his ideas for a long, long time, every time I listen to it, I gather something else, I connect something else that was intended in what he was saying and that I just wasn't in a position to fully appreciate at the time. Um, if you want to get in touch with me for any reason, you can reach me at markmichaeljames at gmail.com. And as I've said previously, if you've got ideas for guests or want to guest yourself, please do reach out. Also, if you want to connect with Fred, he shares his email towards the end of our conversation. Uh, so hang around until then. I think that's more or less it. Without further ado, I bring you a conversation I had sometime around late November 2021 with Dr. Fred Cummins. Great to have you here, Fred. Um, how are you? Good to be here, Mark. I'm grand. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I think uh, as soon as I had the idea of doing this podcast, you were obviously somebody who came to mind. Um, in a way, when I you know think of these ideas, I can't get you out of my mind, right? <laughs> the history we Sorry. have together, <laughs> you haunt uh, you know haunt me for better or worse at times. And uh, but I I think that that just goes to show. Um, in some sense, the 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 kind of uh, I suppose strength of your ideas, or the extent to which they have shaped my own thinking. Um, but yeah, so we're going to talk today, hopefully, about a range of different things. Um, well, inevitably, about about a range of different things. Um, but I kind of give you the framing there before we sat down to talk to uh, to tell you a little bit about you know, the, the intentions or the aims of this podcast, um, and say that, uh, here in the unit where I'm working at OIST, uh, we have a, we have this challenge where people are coming into the unit and there's not a, a shared sense or not a shared common ground, if you will, a common conceptual ground. Um, people are coming from very different backgrounds with very different expectations and assumptions and, I suppose, ideas about how to do science, how to do philosophy. And I think one of the biggest challenges for people, um, and it's still a challenge for me, right, at times, and I'm sure it is a challenge for you, and it's something that's kind of been refashioned all the time, is getting their heads around um, the notion of embodiment uh, writ large, I guess. 
Um, and I think that might be an interesting place for us to to kind of enter this discussion, right? Because a lot of stuff starts to follow from that. Everything follows from that. <laughs> Everything follows from that, right? Maybe maybe a good you know inroad here is to maybe talk about your your relationship to this um, to this notion generally and historically. Maybe you know when you encountered this notion as significant um, and it started right. to inform your philosophical thought. Right. Um, embodiment has become a catchphrase within the broad and very undisciplined field of cognitive science. And mm. um, people are not quite clear what it means mm. because one can work out that notion in very many ways. Um, it has only, it began, I began doing work in the 90s. Uh, from what I would now call an, an embodied point of view, that is, we were faced with um, ecological psychology was very big at the time, opposition to the intellectual fantasies of artificial intelligence and, and computationalism that was getting out of hand was available, and the new language of dynamical systems was coming in in the 90s. Uh, of course, I understand those currents better now. It's 2021. Um, and I didn't realize how many other currents would come together. Since then, inaction has appeared as a as a really interesting school of thought. Um, extended mind has taken over. And these days, really, you can't... You're not a cognitive scientist unless you're aware of the tensions and diversity that exists between intellectualist and embodied approaches. Um, now, that makes it sound almost like embodiment is just a new version of empiricism, um, mm. because there's a traditional opposition between rationalism and empiricism, mm. between over-intellectualizing our being and over-organicizing our being, perhaps. Um, and it's not that opposition not that opposition. I'm beginning to see now that uh, cognitive science is concerned with how we understand ourselves and our being in the world. You see, I used to think it was simply about knowing, but what it is to know turns out to be deeply involved with what it is you think you are and how you live, where you live, when you live. Um, and there I think I don't like to speak of progress, but I think recent work in embodied cognitive science is drawing us back to something extremely important. Um, I don't want to start off with history, but I don't know how, how big history is. If you think science is what's been done in the last five years, primarily, we got a problem. I see science as, as um, a recent sort of thing, that affects whatever humans are, um, and it's happened in a much larger historical context. So I like to see a couple of thousand years of historical context, and I like to think globally. And all that time, what have we learned from science? We've learned that we have bodies, and that we need to attend to those bodies, and the manner in which we understand ourselves revolves around those bodies. That has not been clear to everyone at all times. Everyone knew they had bodies, but that the person that your being in the world needs to be understood as centered on your body, and in particular in our tradition, which I'm going to 
try and find a word for, there's been the idea that the body belongs to a person, belongs to a personal autobiography, born on a certain day, dying on a certain day, attached with certain indices of the person. Um, that's a, a theme that we can't get away from now, but it has been has its origins in uh, the Greco-Christian tradition. I'm not going to say the West, the Western tradition. I'm going to say the Greco-Christian tradition, which has um, developed the idea of the person and the autonomous person in a body. Uh, And science is not very good at... uh, It's catching up. It's only beginning to recognize this. So... um, if you ask me, what we've learned from physics is that we have bodies of a determinate size that live at determinate speeds and have spatial characteristics. And then we've got the biological sciences where we end up discussing relation mm. um, and um, mutuality. And then we've got a third discourse frame, which is this one, where we're dialoguing and speaking as, as humans with all our individual limitations trying to find our position in the world. So I think embodiment, the turn towards embodiment represents a major, a potentially major shift in how we understand and discipline science generally. How we handle discursive negotiated living in which science is a means to action and a means of informing our common actions. But the physicalist register and the biologicalist register have now emerged as two separate registers each of them protected with their own values, each of them capable of revealing different truths about ourselves. And I don't think that's been widely recognized. I think embodied cognitive science is helping us, in other words, to move science to a more powerful and informed position to inform us about our body. Mm. Oh, that's a bit much. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you ranged over some good stuff there. I'd like to get back to some of it too. But um, so, so in short, right, the 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 embodiments embodiments provides for us a new uh leave off point from which to do science but if if that's the case right it's it's necessarily going to be a new site of contest too right so there's going to be uh um if 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 the the core insight is that we do science effectively through through our bodies and and about our bodies um, and about our body embodied relations, whatever scale you take that to be, um, there's going to be a range of sciences and a range of interpretations of that thing. So I, I guess I'm interested in if we take it back to the unit here and we try to orient um, some of the incoming students to some of the maybe history of embodiment that most directly informs an inactive stance or something uh, right. in those terms um can we can we work through a little bit of that history together sure I, the, the history that's usually trotted out here begins in 1991 with the publication of the embodied mind right I, i'd rather go back to 16 whenever it was that william harvey published the circulation of the blood that's when embodiment really hit us <laughs> interesting okay i haven't heard this before Um, William Harvey spent many, many years detailing and coming up with a systematic description of how the heart functions in the body. 
Mm. Uh, the, the whole systematicity, the dual circulation systems, the, the nature of arteries and veins, the manner in which the heart functions as a pump for the body gave us our first compelling, one might almost say um, indubitable account of a biological function. Mm. We agree, and I think this is not bad science, we agree that the heart is a pump for the body. Um, the heart can be understood as a pump only if we assume that there is a body whose integrity is uh, the background against which we can make that claim. The heart, the, the heart exists in a corpse as well. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is that it's not serving this ongoing living organization of the body. That's a very, very key moment in science. Um, Science developed together with uh, massive changes in human living, with industrialization, and more recently with our post-World War II information and communications age. And in all that time, our, our talk about functions has become extraordinarily unhinged and undisciplined. Um, we like to attribute functions to everything. Soon, Neo-Darwinian evolution always speaks of fitness and adaptation, purpose, um, this is advantageous, this is good, this is bad. Um, the psychological sciences are rife with function. Medicine, the body as constructed in the medical field, uses function in the Harvey-esque sense. That is, it uses function um, backed by the body. But in the psychological and social sciences, the word function now just becomes a general sense of our articulation of purpose or goal or behavior or task. And so on. Now, science has never had an easy time with purposes. Mm -hmm. This, if we consider Aristotle as the founder of modern science, or science, scientific inquiry, you, you don't have to consider him, but he was certainly enormously influential. And Aristotle is full of purposes. And one of the principal facets of the scientific modernity that kicked in around 1600 was the attempt to banish such talk, such Aristotelian talk of this wants to go there. Fire wants to go up, earth wants to go down. Because it wasn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't being very productive. Um, but that disciplining that led to the elimination of function in the mechanical worldview didn't last, right? When the heart is, has a function in the body, we've, we've let functions back in carefully. Mm. Now that... Um, in re more recent years, to come right back up to the post-1991 history, the uh, inaction and the elaboration of various forms of embodiment are seem to me to be attempts to get away from willful invention of functions, which can have extremely detrimental consequences, to grounding, rooting our understanding of ourselves back in the body, so that we, our appeal to functions, to purposes and goals um, have a bit more grounding. Right. If you just make up right. functions and purposes, you hand the keys to the body over to the forces of science and technology that want to automate you, turn you into a cognitive machine. We then speak, we can set you behavioral goals and we can develop lab tasks to check whether you're doing them, whether you're satisfying multiple behavioral goals simultaneously. And we construct a view of the person that is perfect for industry and is absolutely abhorrent. Um, and, we, you know, we, 
Our real work goes on as we're doing right now, having conversations, person to person, and somewhat ignorant and, you know, limited and finite. Um, the domains of discourse of the in the physical register and in the biological register can be improved to more usefully guide us in our dialectic, in our dialogue here where we work together to better understand our position in things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to get to that at some point, right? The, 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 as you cash them out, the various domains of discourse are in a very general mm. sense. But I think that's maybe a bit um, down, the, down the road in our conversation mm. here. I, I want to bring you back a little bit to um, maybe talk a little bit about why uh, within an inactive framing, uh, it seems to give this kind of positive account of function, uh, or at least help us make make that intelligible. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to stop doing deep dives. Um, one reason that the, the publication in 1991 of The Embodied Mind, one reason that was so seminal is that it was informed not only by Western science, but also by what we vaguely indicate to as Buddhist philosophy. Now, those words Buddhist and philosophy are both difficult, but it was informed by uh, currents that were not entirely Greco-Christian. <laughs> mm. um, its, approach, its approach to metaphysics, to grounding, uh, to ethics, to uh, time, were all um, not business as usual. Mm. That meant that it was had the potential to be destabilizing and to provide um, handholds for people who were dissatisfied with an increasingly singular, technologized, intellectualized view of human living that seemed to place an unworldly burden on the shoulders of an individual who's held responsible for everything they do, um, thereby distracting us from the fact that the society that thereby ensues is also the production that we bring about. The ecology that thereby ensues is also the production that we bring about. So there's something liberating in reintroducing the body, not from a medical standpoint, but from a philosophical standpoint. Mm. Uh, um, which has energized thinking and is drawing together, not always easily, drawing together such things as the insights from coordination dynamics and its nice application of mechanics, oh, I'm sorry, of mathematics, of dynamical systems, specifically in looking at coordinative patterns in the strange, I must say, world of ecological psychology, which has its own robust and um, very enthusiastic history. Um, these don't all add up to a single picture, but what they do articulate is a new space for thinking um, around and with the body, which is a little bit more generous in, in the currents it draws from historically. So as you can see, I'm interested in, we're here today, the themes and ideas and resources that are available to us come from us historically, and the suite that we can draw from has got larger. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to 
disavows science or the Greco-Christian tradition, what I'm going to show is that in a globalized world after the Second World War, as we are, um, the currents from which we draw are deeper. That's why I'm not happy with the words Buddhist or philosophy, because Buddhist is the name given to a world religion, which is a paradigm I'm not interested in. Philosophy is a name which is prototypically associated with the Greeks. <laughs> um, but that's the best words we have from here to point out that there are serious um, historical precedents we can draw on as we begin to try to grope towards some form of self-understanding. Hmm. I'm, I'm interested in... Uh, I'm not... Uh... <laughs> I'm not interested in picking fights here as such, but I'm interested in um, if you can talk a little bit about, say, how you see the, say, psychology done in the, in the kind of s s standard mode up until, um, well, it's still done this in this mode, right, by and large. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of... Uh, the mainstream of cognitive science to, to this day, right? There's still uh, what you might call an orthodoxy, right? That has certain assumptions that were, that were already there in 1991 and haven't really shifted all that much. Um, even if embodiment is displacing some of that, I, I think there's still uh, a dominant orthodoxy there. But the... I'm, can I ask you what you mean by psychology there? Well, what I mean specifically when I think about that is my training in psychological science in ah. undergrad. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, cognitive psychology. Right. Um, uh, that, that should not be mistaken for psychology. Right, of course, of course. Uh, what, but I suppose what I was saying, right, we have this introduction of embodiment. I mean, right, it was there before uh, Varel and Thompson and Rush. It was, it was obviously in Gibson. It was obviously in Merleau-Ponty. It was obviously in people before that. But um, running parallel to that, um, you have this 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 more dominant scientific view, I guess, uh, which I am referring to as psychology up to that point. And I, what I'm interested in is a minute ago you said something along the lines of how when this when this text was published the embodied mind it brought to bear brought into a conversation that was already ongoing a certain set of uh say background assumptions or assumptions made explicit in that case that were from a very different lineage um than what western scientific psychology had grown up with um i'm wondering if you can talk a little because i know that this is an interest of yours if you could talk a little bit about the 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 the, the more the longer term origins of say something like something we come to call um psychological science in in the late 20th century one of aristotle's wonderful books is de anima which is on the soul uh, there are many books called The Anima from around that time. Other people also wrote The Animas. A central question was, what animates us? What is the animating force in the body? Is it the gods? Is it We didn't have the Christian Protestant at that stage. Is What animates us? What causes us to move? And what causes everything to move, right? From the winds to the, the leaves and the trees, 
the volcanic lava? What causes animation? Mm. Um, and it's we've never stopped being fascinated with that question. The study of change is the study of everything that's interesting, really. Um, when we speak of psychology, we are uh, today we are meeting a range of practices that don't speak of a single subject. So you have your constructive cognitive psychology done in the lab where people get to do bizarre tasks. You have your counseling and therapy, the, un, the, the wild, wild world of therapy, which draws, among other things, still from Freud and Jung mm. and, many, and Lacan and many other sorts of characters. We have the soteriological business of taking care of each other, of trauma counseling, of minding each other, of providing support. And you have the whole self-help people's own picture of themselves. Now, to claim that one of these is the real psychology would be a grotesque error, because what they show is that psychology is always this mode of questioning about ourselves, some of it undone in a scientific register, which has its commitments, among other things, to a specific socio-technical order. Um, so psychology, I'm, I'm not happy with equating cognitive psychology with psychology generally. I think of psychology as soul science. And mm. I'm using that word deliberately because I think that best captures the variety of approaches mm. here. Yeah, I'm not using it, I'm not drawing from any specific uh, dogma, dogmatic view or metaphysical view of the soul, but our questioning into what moves us when are we possessed? When are we responsible? When are we sane? When are we insane? When do voices speak through mm. us? If I speak now, am I responsible for my words? Or maybe you're hearing my institution speaking through me. You're definitely hearing the authority of professorial, scientific sort. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation, because you think there's something in there beyond the blob, the naked monkey that is me. He's not actually um, naked. <laughs> <laughs> we're on audio. It doesn't matter. Um so I think psychology is all of these things. It's been our concern. And look, as science progresses, most scientific findings affect nobody, possibly one or two technicians. Occasionally, there are insights that come from science that change us. Mm. The mechanical worldview changed us. It gave us a different relationship to res extensa, to the material world around us. It proved useful for launching rockets. It's probably going to, it's, it's not sufficient to deal with the ecological challenge, but it, was, it changed us. Harvey's discovery of the role of the heart in the body changed our view of the body. And there's one other, Darwin. <laughs> Darwin landed us with a bombshell that we haven't even begun to digest. Because since Darwin, we know that we are simultaneously, we have to grapple with seeing ourselves as organisms, as animals, mm. as within nature. Mm. And we have deprived ourselves of calling ourselves gods. Mm. There's a beautiful section in Merleau-Ponty in the Phenomenology of Perception. He's a difficult guy to write, to write, and you can always feel something inside Merleau-Ponty you wanting to get out about the body. He's the prophet of flesh. There's this beautiful section where he's talking. I can't follow what he's saying, and then suddenly he cries out, I am not God, but merely lay claim to being divine. 
Oh, no, sorry, lay claim to the divine. That sense cannot be beaten out of us either. Mm-hmm. But that was articulated always using the Christian notion of the soul that set us apart from the animals from whom we were clearly distinct. Remember for Descartes, animals were automata and we were different because we had the spark of reason. Since Darwin, we can no longer appeal to that. Now, we have not digested this yet. One thing that people in the, who come to embodied cognitive science might find confusing, and it's a hallmark of the confused state that we're all in, is the way in which the, the conversation in any given article or book moves between the considerations of the person and the subject and intersubjectivity, the organism... Sometimes we speak of ourselves as organisms. The animal, a very importantly different character, or the system. Now consider those four. The person. This is an ethical construction that comes into being together in our in our discourse. Mm. You know, we if we decide to, if we don't recognize someone as a person, they are ostracized. They are not part of society. Yeah. And every human society has sorted itself and drawn its boundaries. Mm. Currently, we use a label called humanity without quite knowing what that is to try and draw a boundary, but others draw boundaries differently there. They always have. And furthermore, they'll be sorting into castes and classes and nations and social orders within that. Um, but since Darwin, we have, we're confronted with this vast task of seeing ourselves in an organismic register, mm. seeing ourselves in an animal register. Ooh, Animal is not the same thing as organism. When I think of organism, I think of looking through a microscope at these little blobs, <laughs> amoebae, and, or maybe interesting. You know, I think a giraffe is far more interesting than the generic term organism. A giraffe is an organism elaborated in a wonderful giraffe-like spirit. Organism is the most general frame possible that speaks in the terms used by inaction of the autonomy, relative autonomy, of a coherent unity that persists in interaction with its surround. That's an organismic frame. It's not the same thing as a medical frame. Our body in medicine is developed differently. It's a very generic frame. In ecological psychology, astonishingly to my mind, people Mm -hmm. comfortably use the word animal. And the world of ecological psychology is not a metaphysically rich world. It's a world populated by uh, preformed beings gannets and dogs and baseball players um and it seems from the ecological psychologist's perspective it's animal behavior and seeing ourselves as animals that they want to do but they omit thereby the crucial difference you can have sex with a human but you're not to kill a human you're not to have sex with an animal but you can kill an animal that is a fundamental difference there and if you're going to use the animal frame it hinges on that and the word animal comes with all these moral considerations, which the word organism doesn't come with. Mm. But when we speak of organisms, we're now speaking of a, of in a, in a register in which predation and prey are on equal footing. We can't take sides. We cannot look at an organism and say it's morally good or bad. That doesn't work. So this is the challenge Darwin gave us. And boy, howdy, are we still dealing with it. I don't think we've, we've, we've digested an awful lot of this, but I see embodied cognitive science as providing us with a way of better addressing this challenge that Darwin left us with. Darwin had no idea what he was doing. If I speak of people historically, 
I'm not interested in the person. Darwin was a Victorian, pre-Victorian Beatle collector. Um, you know, Immanuel Kant was, was uptight. It's always the register, the effect that they have. As I said, most scientific discoveries affect almost nobody, but some of them affect us all. Mm. And with Darwin, we're still working that out. So That's where embodied cognitive science comes from. Right, right, mm. right. So, so you're... I think it's it's kind of obvious in what you were saying there, but just maybe just to to kind of double click on the, on the point, <clears throat> like the, the the concern in mixing up the frames is that we also mix up ethical relations to the things that we're framing. We draw distinctions that maybe we wouldn't want to draw if we actually you know had some sort of better grasp on um, a set of distinctions that were more adequate uh, and. In doing science in these various registers, um, we are maybe, unbeknownst to ourselves, a lot of the time reproducing uh, trends in a sense, right? Cer certain normative relations and so on. That yeah, you won't, you can't stop us doing that. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but we can be we can develop a greater sensitivity to the manner in which we're framing our discourse the assumptions and when we're treating a person as a as an animal when we're treating a person as an organism when we're um yeah. but how do we do know. that right I, I i you know if someone agrees with you <laughs> is it uh, for me that seems like we we need to enter into a wider discourse. And maybe, you know, in, in a way, that's part of the, this this project here, right? It's saying, okay, embodied cognitive science needs to be in conversation with it. Um, I'm talking to an embodied cognitive scientist here, but the hope of this project, right, is to, is to in a sense, ask who should we be talking to? Because what, right. from what I'm hearing from you is, that, right, we talk to somebody in a different discipline who has a different frame frame on the world and they point out some sort of set of ethical relations that somehow, you know, <clears throat> interferes with how we've been thinking about the world, but maybe in a good way, right? Maybe in a way that we need to, to be taking some of that on board. Right. Um, the latter half of the 20th century saw some very significant developments that will be worked out over the next century or two. One of these was the, the birth of, of um, nonlinear mathematics, the chaos theory, fractal theory, dynamical systems. This, this is... Um, reinvigorating the manner in which we um, understand the relation of models to world. Um, but the other, another of these enormous developments was the second order cybernetic perspective, the awareness of the impossibility of removing the observer from the context of observation, the fact that all observation mm. is done by an observer. Mm. This is the um, the imperative uh, given to us by second-order cybernetics. What it means is that as our thoughts are developing, I'm speaking to you, Mark, these ideas, if they're worth anything, will change. Let's not leap to what we should be doing on an everyday sense, but they change actually the way you inhabit your body and the way that you personally understand your own being in the world. Mm. And that must happen on a collective level as well. This introduction of second order cybernetics into our collective formations is being, I mean, <laughs> we, this is happening whether we like it or not. The, when we point to climate change, ecos, ecocide, um, the absolutely 
terrible state of humanity understood in one particular way. Mm. We could we could have nightmares all the time. But what we're seeing is, in fact, I believe that we, our self-understanding is capable of change. And in fact, it's not something you can aspire to doing. We're part of this. Mm. We are gradually becoming more... Um, aware of our own role in the production of the world we live in. Mm. And that's where embodied cognitive science is of import for personal living and for collective living. Yeah, yeah. I was going yeah, to go. ask that question, right? So it seems that comes right back to notions of embodiment, right? It says, mm-hmm. here's how we start to parse all of this in a, in a sense, right? The, the body is shot through with all these um, animating forces, I guess, right? Coming from yeah. different... And, and for me personally, engagement in over 30 years now with embodied cognitive science continues to change the way I inhabit my body and understand the way I inhabit a world mm. as well. Mm. Um, so we're not dealing with building a better representation of the world. We're dealing with better ways of collectively inhabiting the world. Right, right, right. Right. That's a, so I think I was thinking we kind of got very deep and very heavy very quickly. Um, and I think, you know, that's inevitable, right? But there's certain things that I wanted to talk to you, maybe more specific things. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think maybe when we go through some of this stuff a little bit, we can get back to some of the things that we've gestured towards in that conversation we've just had. Mm. Um, we can come up for air. <laughs> exactly. So the, the the obvious one when I'm talking to Fred Cummins, right, is to talk about joint speech. Um Joint speech is obviously, you know, something that you've, in a sense, pioneered the the research study on and something that is getting more and more of a hearing, um, but something that has existed kind of in the background of our understanding, uh, at least in terms of a scientific understanding. And, you know, I'm saying these things, but you're really the man to actually introduce this topic. So can you talk to us a little bit about joint speech? I'd be delighted to. So joint speech, for those who don't know, is basically chanting, or rather to place a more, a slightly more workable definition on it, when multiple people utter the same sounds at the same time, I'm going to call it joint speech. And that simple empirical definition draws us to look at human goings on in specific circumstances, because joint speech arises in highly charged circumstances. It arises in temples, ritual, practices of worship. It arises in sports and and other transgenerational collective identity generating activities. It arises in protests, which are unstable times in which identity is also manifest or enacted. It arises in educational um curriculum, primarily in primary schools, young children are brought up, educated to Mm. um, chant certain things, whether it's a pledge of allegiance. And they do this naturally as well, because after the educators have stopped teaching the children to chant the Quran or the Pledge of Allegiance, then the kids go out in the playground and they chant merrily together. They bully each other using chant. It's not all positive, but it's a human behavior that... um, occurs in every human society is older than writing itself. I won't bother making the argument here. Um, And it seems to me to be a useful way of looking at us both in an organismic and in a perfectly human discursive sense. Because chanting 
is um, has escaped the view of a science in which language is thought of as, first of all, super special and human, and then as a form of coded message passing in the informational register across secret minds and so on. There's a problem with, with, with that discourse. And as long as you pursue that discourse, you can't see chanting as being interesting in any way because mm -hmm. no messages are being exchanged. Speakers and listeners are conflated. But if we draw back and now see that chanting is an important part of the way in which human social, human aggregation, human collectivities come into being and enact their being, because mm -hmm. chanting has to be repeated, rituals are repeated, nearly every form of chant involves a lot of repetition, it's bringing into being, then it begins to look like something you could almost consider from an, in an organismic register. So yesterday I saw a beautiful animated mm. GIF, someone had put together out of tons of gigabytes of data, which showed the entire world in a, a loop of five seconds or so as the snow caps advanced and retreated. So it showed the world breathing in its regular yearly register. And I thought to myself, wow, how many animals are chanting along with this respiration, this annual respiration, we find not chanting, but we find chor chorusing behavior in frogs, in crickets, in fish, in sea urchins. <laughs> we find it in, in all kinds of animals where their collective activities are tied in or entrained or coupled to daily cycles, lunar cycles, and yearly cycles. Mm. Now, in an organismic register, understanding the manner in which you are tied into these um, biological uh, processes, chironic processes, biological processes of relation, is really important. And there, chanting suddenly looks like, oh, well, that's something interesting. Mm. And we need something here because if we want to maintain a sense of identity as humans, one problem we've struggled with is our apparent difference from all other organisms and animals. And language, is, language and reason are the two sort of pillars that have always routinely in the Greek or Christian tradition been brought to bear here to say, ah, look, that's the divine spark. That's what sets us apart. But if we think now of continuous history, there's obviously no moment at which the human appears. We are continuous all the way back to the first life forms. So something happened to our species that transformed our world. And the notion of language as is typically understood in conventional discourse cannot account for that. But languaging as various forms of coordinative and affiliative activity that give rise to shared social worlds, that looks like something you might be able to put in an organismic register. In other words, it looks like a more plausible beginning for understanding how humans have enacted their particular worlds. Mm. That's why I chant, I think chanting is um, a, a good place to look to develop a better understanding of ourselves and our collective being. And it's just so much fun. Chant is incredible fun to study. And it changes, it has changed me dramatically. Yes. It has changed. And, and furthermore, you're picking up on here on, on, on stuff that other traditions know about, the role of right. chanting in Indian traditions, the role of Aum going back to the Vedas, mm -hmm. the role of mantras, 
Mantras are not, of course, only found in the, in the Indian traditions. We've got them in the Christian traditions as well, especially in Eastern and Orthodox rituals. But when you start to put that together, forget about um, the authority of institutions or definable uh, human lineages. What you see is that chanting pervades human society. It is an index of ritual. It's not, you won't, the efficacy of ritual is something that science has been, it's condemned to the cultural wasteland about which we can say nothing. But as a cognitive scientist, I'm an anthropologist as well. That's, you have to be an anthropologist to be a cognitive scientist. And that means being less than determinate about your own being. And that means recognizing the manner in which you do things is interestingly similar to the manner in which very different people do things. So chanting draws you here, and it means you get to run around between, you know, go take part in a riot, go attend a football match, go stare at school kids, and attend some of the most bizarre, wonderful rituals. I encourage everyone, if you are born in any tradition, go to the rituals of other traditions. Steep mm-hmm. yourself in it. Don't accept them or not accept them. Just make yourself aware that the tradition you come from is not that distinguished in that all traditions have their rituals. No matter how secular you think you are, you've got your rituals. Yeah, very powerfully put, Fred. I've never heard you piece it together like that before, um, talking about chanting in the or- organismic register and building up that picture, right? So we get the nice image of the respiring earth and the animals participating in that whole cycle. And then yes, the as as that manifests in in human form, right? It has to take some other yeah. shape, and it gets shaped into our languaging abilities. Just as a giraffe is not, you, there's only so much you can say about a giraffe as an organism. At some stage, you're going to have to talk about giraffe specifics, like those big necks and those trees and the, those wonderful colors, and so on. Yeah, none of that is in an organismic register. That's in a giraffe register, but. We do need to do, to understand in what way the human world arises in continuity with other forms of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just had a the, the kind of aha moment there in relationship to how you're maybe thinking about the organismic register. So for you, it's um, <clears throat> it's a certain level of of abstraction, maybe in relationship to certain type. I guess in relationship to any living entity, you can construe it at a certain level of of abstraction that is um, or within a particular frame that is organismic and then it doesn't include particulars necessarily right you start to see the continuities right um what 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 aspects of a giraffe can be best understood in a organismic frame and what aspects of a giraffe Mm. have to sort of acknowledge the 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 world of the giraffe in all its particularities. In an organismic frame, you'd still talk about the coherent organization of the body. You do your basic mm. physiology. Mm. You'd speak of the organs as they subserve the, the body of the giraffe. But but the signaling, mating habits, um, predator-prey relations, those are not really going to come from a study of the giraffe as an organism. They're going to come from the study of a giraffe as a distinguished member of a particular ecosystem. Right, right. With a, lo- with a long history. Um, now, we humans, when we come to think of ourselves in an organismic register, uh, we have a, a weakness for one organ. 
It's the brain. Mm. Um, we're, we're very fond of our brains. Um, mm. We attribute all kinds of things to the brain. We project onto the brain. We give the brain miraculous powers um, of generating imaginations, ideas, thoughts, and so on. These are our fantasies. This is our, this is how we understand ourselves, but it, that will not resolve to an organismic register. Um, mm. The brain considered in an organismic register is part of the physiology of the body. The brain considered in an organismic register doesn't house consciousness or thoughts or ideas or imagination or earworms. Um, so you're well aware that in our conventional discourse, we blame the brain for lots. I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying that our handle on this is not secure. Now, there's lots of pushback in the embodied camps at different degrees um, for the uh, casual association of everything with the brain. You can stuff everything into the brain, and then you have constructed the autonomous Protestant who's responsible for all their actions, because the brain must also house the conscience, the moral sense, um, all these kinds of things. So lots of people want to push back against the casual, magical att attributions to the brains, but none of us are free of it. Mm -hmm. Um I defy you to think of yourself without thinking about your brain in some sense. So there's always a tension here. And this tension cannot be got out of us. On the one hand, we love ourselves. We are gods. I am not God, but merely lay claim to the divine. Mm. Merleau-Ponty's insistence here is a very human one that makes you the center of your own world. Um, and we have the challenge of the organism. Um, living with that tension is essential. Mm. I'm obviously not arguing for pursuing one course or another here. I'm pointing out the tension that exists as we build any story about our bodies and specifically about our brains. It's very telling that, once more, if you look at the language used in cognitive science literature... They often speak about the body and the brain. What? <laughs> the body and the brain? <laughs> you wouldn't speak about the body and the kidney. <laughs> the body and the thymus. Well, that's mm. a bit odd. Mm. Um, I so often feel that's, see, that's I, done as a kind of genuflection, right? To, we know this, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, you know, it's just to keep the, keep the discourse kind of friendly in some fashion. So I'm, I'm going to make a suggestion here. I don't make many suggestions. I suggest we treat the brain as a sacred object and that we don't finalize our account of the brain, but recognize that we are the ones who value the brain and that we therefore need to approach this object with some caution. Um, there are ethical and moral consequences to how we interpret the brain and the role we give to it. Um, that's my suggestion, that, but suggesting that we treat the brain as a sacred object is going to go down like a lead balloon. <laughs> it's, just my, it's just my preferred stance. There's different takes on, you know, that sacred object, right? So it's actually a good uh, opportunity to... I think one of the questions, right, that, um, say, me being a philosopher in the unit, I get pitched a lot, um, is, okay, well, what about the brain then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they never ask about the kidney, no? No, no, the kidney doesn't come up, nor the liver. <laughs> But uh, so, so bias—that's bias. You've you've told a nice story on occasion, um, and 
maybe you could repeat it for us or rehearse it for us here. It's um, another kind of, there's an, there's other ways of kind of sacralizing the brain, right? And it's it's been done within different disciplines in different ways. Um, and one kind of manifestation that we've seen of that that you've picked up on and that's quite interesting is the notion of the blue brain. Can you talk about that for us for a bit? Right. I have to credit my friend Alexander Greiser from the Theology and Religious Studies in Trinity College for this. She studies the aesthetics of religion, that is, the images, the material accoutrements that go with various forms of religious practice. And she noticed, quite correctly, that if you just Google image search the brain, you find an awful lot of spectacularly clear toilet blue um, luminous organs often radiating out to galaxies and beyond. And this imagery um, re- is very revealing of a stance towards the brain. In other words, if I say mm. we ought to treat the brain as a sacred object, well, obviously everyone already is. Interestingly, an awful lot of these blue brain images seem to come from a single graphic workshop in Seattle. Mm. But they caught on, and they, you're familiar with the Galaxy Brain meme template, for example, oh, no, uh, no. which comes in Galaxy many forms. Brain no, meme. no, meme, no. Yeah, okay. Well, there's memes out there which show uh, more or less a slightly luminous brain, a more luminous brain, and then a brain expanding out to the universe, and they give you yeah. three hot takes on something. Uh, okay. People find this. Um, it's interesting that that meme works so well because people have always used. Um, specific imagistic reference points to tell elaborate stories. If we look at the role of the uh, the Christ story, the crucifixion or the annunciation or the transfiguration, these were all reproduced as images and people encountered these images and every parish priest developed stories around these images, gave them ways to think about themselves. Well, we're doing this with the brain. Mm. <laughs> we are using the brain in many respects as... Uh, as a means of making selves of our sense of ourselves, but we can't help in so doing in engaging in these, um, I suppose, wonderful fantasies. But you know, they need to be tethered. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, I'm not against every kind of imaginative, enthusiastic, wild practice. They're they're all fine. All ways of living are fine. But in scientific discourse, this stance with respect to the brain Mm. needs to be curated with care. And as embodied cognitive scientists, that's one thing, one responsibility that comes to us. Mm. Mm. So the the, the curation of that uh, consideration, you know, where do you start with that? Well, I don't think we're very good at it uh, yet. Um, mm. but I'm not, when I see, I, I do think actually it's, it's sorry to cut you off. I think it's, you know, it's such a concern that it, it's a, it's a real, um, impediment to, uh, to an embodied understanding, right? The brain science in some weird way stands in the way of people, um, sensitizing themselves to what an account of an embodiment can provide. Right, but you don't want to be reduced to an organism because then we're looking at you through a microscope and predator and prey are in equal relations. There's no good, there's no bad. Right. And the organismic frame doesn't give you that. 
the medical frame, the physical construction of the body is a social production. This is one reason that medicine is always such a contested territory, as we're seeing in the time of the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. But medicine itself is elaborated within a social um, context, social and historical context, and the manner in which you, what you consider to be a well-functioning body depends on what you think a body ought to be doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't have a medical account of why it's good for a Zen practitioner to sit upright and do nothing for hours and hours and hours. Mm. But, you know, that doesn't in any sense disqualify that practice. <laughs> it just says, well, your, your construction of the body doesn't tell you what these bodies are capable of something that's not captured in that model. Mm. I'll tell you one thing that has struck me recently, the last couple of years, with a vengeance, is that our considerations of the brain the stories we tell about the brain have largely blinded us to other aspects of our embodiment, specifically our columnar organization, our spines, our bilaterality, um, the four limbs we have, those basic morphological features of the body need to inform our self-understanding mm. and they reflect back in the world. We treat our bodies sometimes as if they were mere... Um, puppets as if they were something that just had to act in our service. Mm. But as we so do, we also shape the body. You know, the construction of the human world involves things like shoes and chairs, both of which radically altered the body, as Tim Ingold has shown beautifully, um, for example. Um, how much of your perception, your engagement with the world is shaped by your spine, by the torso, by the manner in which you turn towards the world, by the range of movement you have? These are largely unexplored questions because of a, an intellectualist fascination with the brain as the sole origin of cognition, consciousness, and being in the world. Mm -hmm. Heinz von Furster had this lovely quip. He said, wir sehen mit den Beinen, we see with our legs. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely right, but that was only the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, when you move your legs, you walk around, the visual field changes. So what you see changes, and you can use your legs to orient you and point yourself. But the word seeing there uh, is not captured in any scientific register at all. Um, mm. Oops, I just ran into a problem there. Let's back away from the problem of seeing. Um, so there are aspects to our embodiment that I think can, must be informative about the manner in which we've created the human world and how we continue to create the human world going forward our demands that we have electricity and internet, for example, probably not sustainable on a planetary basis. So how do you want to live? I mean, when people think about changes to their lifestyle and they go beyond doing the recycling or um, purchasing ethically sourced products, what kind of way of life is there that a body like this can engage in that... Um, can persist mm. Mm. inaction yeah. in other words the inactive thing brings us back to very core questions where the articulation of the question is far more important than the answer that is setting off on a path to attend to the body to attend to practices of communion to attend to mutuality and relations cross species relations as well these are um, well 
we have no choice. We, we're we're going to be doing this whether whether we like it or not. And science can help us out here. Science, I believe, can help us out here. But the mode of questioning will continue to develop. And I think that's where em, embodied approaches are not a flavor or a fad. That's what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good, Fred. Um, the so you talk about the the organismic register, <clears throat> but you also I, I forget how you construct it exactly. You have the the kind of intersubjective register, or the the, the dialogical register, and then you have the <clears throat> institutional register. Is that how you think about it? No, 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 no. Um... A, 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 a ridiculous and simplistic notion of science distinguishes between objects and subjects and says we're constructing an objective picture and subjectivity, subjectivity can't feature. That's the kind of frenzy with which the mechanical worldview was born. And we all know that that's absolutely unsustainable. You can't, the idea that when we keep facts and values separate fails at the heart. It fails with William Harvey's notion of the heart, which is a pump for the body. Um, no, beyond that, I think we have two registers which we can curate. The physicalist register that acknowledges no goals, the organismic register that acknowledges gradients and mutuality. Mm. And then the third one is not a register, it's not a frame. Those are both frames. Mm. We're having a conversation. I'm having a cup of tea. We're chatting. Um, we're both kind of ignorant and we draw from books and we have probably a mad and mad and bad ideas. That's not a register, but that's where we actually do our science. But in doing the science, we now have two registers to draw from where previously in the simplistic mode of objects and subjects, there was one register, the objective and physical, physicalist and objective went together. And everything else was, as I think it was Eddington put it, stamp collecting. There's Two science, kinds of science, physics and stamp collecting, right? Remember that? Um, well, that's terrible. That's absolutely bullshit. There's a physicalist register, an organismic register, and there's our everyday discourse, which is not a register. That's mm. the conduct of science. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so so within, specifically within the, the that conduct... Um, does that mean we do science differently too, right? If we if we take embodiment and a full appreciation of embodiment into our scientific discourse, I think the questions as as embodied concerns become more evident, the mode of questioning in science changes. Mm. We all know, for example, now in a way that we didn't before that the observer interacts with the situation which is being observed. And that, for example, if you want to study human infants, you must engage with them. You cannot hold yourself back from them. If you want to study um, other communities, you must engage with them. Anthrop anthropologists, anthropology has a shameful history, right? It used to be mm -hmm. rich Western people going to study people with bones through their noses and, and describe them in, in European terms as having crazy beliefs. Um, anthropology is not that anymore, I hope. Um, so 
a greater awareness of the role of the body and opening up these questions, recognizing that, for example, the spine has a role to play or that um, the furniture of the world, mm. the furniture of the world will shape the body, um, op- improves our questioning and, and maybe causes us to pay attention to things we wouldn't have paid attention to before. So for me, joint speech and chorusing has been this thing. It's been this intuition pump, if you like, that has constantly drawn me back and allowed me to... uh, There's no specific bodily uh, implication here. It's the use of the voice. We're sound producers, but it puts the use of the voice back in a slightly organismic register because now we can understand it as having something in common with the chorusing behavior of frogs or the snapping of shrimp um, or the howling of of apes. Um, So even the voice is rethought of not so much as the merely the medium of the speaking subject, but rather one of the modes by which the body produces its particular world. In our case, not a giraffe world, but a human world. Mm. Giraffes have really funny voices, by the way. <laughs> and they come from the wrong place. And they come from the wrong place because they've got this big, long neck. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> where, your is expectations it, of where the voice should come from are completely wrong when it comes to giraffes. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is, it, is it a real deep, resonant voice? or is it? Kind no, of... it's a really silly voice. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to go and Google that. Silly and ugly. But, so, but, you know, to a giraffe, I'm sure our voices are silly and ugly. <laughs> There's one, uh, just to circle back a little bit to... Um, yeah. brain questions because they never oh, right. they never stop never really. go away. Um, there's one uh, I guess it's a it's a it's a kind of narrative that you um, tell at times or it's it's a a thought experiment I guess uh, but it's one that has stuck with me and served me well in many conversations oh, good 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 good, good. Uh, and it's it's the one about uh, the brain and the ass and I'm wondering if you can kind of riff on that a little bit for us because i think right the brain and the ass right everyone's familiar I, I hope people are familiar with the brain and the vat hypothesis i think its origin is hillary putnam and it's this idea um made obvious in the in the first episode of the matrix film that your consciousness could be an illusion that you could be deceived if your brain was getting the relevant... Imp- if, so the, this fa- notion requires that you conceive of the brain as the sole producer of consciousness. And furthermore, that that consciousness arises on the basis of inputs and outputs. So it's a weird view of the brain. And the old brain in the vat hypothesis suggested that you could be misled, you could actually be a brain in a vat, who's being fed appropriate inputs and uh, whose outputs are being registered and the inputs then modified appropriately. Cybernetic thinking immediately reveals this to be completely batshit insane. Evan Thompson has done a wonderful takedown of that, and I'm not going to treat of the brain in the vat hypothesis. I wanted to conduct a a less problematic um, thought experiment, but one that attacks the same intuition, which is the idea that the brain on its own is magically producing all the richness of your embedded experience in the world. Um, And I simply suggested that, well, we do have this sense of, I won't say being in our heads, but being located around our heads. Mm -hmm. 
So Descartes famously put the interaction point of res extensa and res cogitans at the pituitary gland. Now, his anatomy wasn't great and the idea is nonsense, but the pituitary gland sits at a really interesting point. If you tried to point to your, your intellectual center and you tried to do Cartesian coordinates on it, front, back, sides, top, bottom, they meet roughly at the pituitary gland. Imagine a point just behind your eyes. The point, incidentally, where the third eye of Shiva also sits, mm. right? This is the point from which you seem to view the world or a central point in your engagement with the world. Now, that is a thoroughly embodied uh, production because you do move around the world and what you see is affected by where roughly that point is in space and where the direction of your face. Um, but that, that's a topological, a geometric point that does not place experience inside the head. Mm. from everything we know about brains, if we were to rewire them, and I suggested putting it in the ass because it might be protected there because brains need protection. And unlike the matrix thought experiment of the brain in the vat, we simply allow ourselves, and here's this is fanciful, allow ourselves to rewire the connections so that no change arises. Now, that's not going to be possible. Those wires are not innocent. But everything we know about the brain, as far as I can tell, suggests that, that that sense of the locus of experience being positioned roughly at the pineal is unchanged. It, the position of the brain, it doesn't arise from the position of the brain. It arises from the positioning of the eyes in the front of the head, from the fact that you bear a face to which other people respond, from the fact that you hear voices through your cranium, you hear your own voice produced through your cranium, largely. Um, the fact that you, um, as you enter the world, you begin to explore first with your mouth, also pointing towards the world. And all this is very head-centered, but none of it has anything to do with brains. <laughs> so attending to the morphology of the body and understanding the geometric and topological manner uh, in which experience unfolds seems to me to be useful. So... Put the brain in the ass, nothing changes, and therefore this idea that, um, well, I know the brain is the producer of my conscious experience because I can witness that myself, that's not supported by what we know of neuroscience and what we know of anatomy and physiology, and it's not supported by bog phenomenology. And by bog phenomenology, I just mean comparison of your experience with my experience on things we can easily check. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's really illustrative. It's uh, as I say, it's it has served me well on occasion. It also pissed people people off a little bit, right? Because there's oh really? Yeah, I think you know we talked before about this the sacralization of brains, right? And different people have different relationships to this to this organ. And uh, well, let you know, the brain in the ass be my contribution to the sacralization <laughs> of brain. When you start shoving <laughs> it in your ass, right? For some people, it's <laughs> step too far. Not, I don't. Stop, Mark. Stop, stop Mark. <laughs> I was talking about housing it protectively in the gluteus maximus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't. A, <laughs> okay, we won't go down that. We won't go down that hole. Um, this podcast has gone a bad direction. <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back on track. The, there's another very interesting uh, historical account I've heard you give in the past. Um, 
I, I also think it's it might be helpful to say when I think about people in our unit um, uh, who who maybe are not just say our unit but more broadly in within cognitive science who have uh, a certain commitment to the the activity of the brain um, and it been uh, say perfectly correlated with activity of mind if you will um, and you've often told the story about uh, the McCullough, the McCullough Pitts history. Can you can you bring that up for us, or is that is that so far in the right. past that you haven't thought about it? No, 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 no. Um, oh, it's much too long a story to tell here. But it's interesting to follow how people came to think, how some people came to think of the brain in a specific way that has obtained scientific respectability. Um, when you look at the history of it, um, you see that, oh, the motivation for that was very different from what you might think, and the consequences are very different from what you might think. So again, there's a popular discourse in which the brain is conceived of as a computational device, um, and the activity of neurons is understood to be captured by their sign by the production of spikes, discrete spikes. And these are equated with logical elements, ones and zeros in Boolean logic. All those pieces belong to that story of the brain as a computer. Um, and it all developed in those heady years after the Second World War when computational when computers became available as a thinking tool for mathematicians. And Warren McCullough and his um, friend Walter Pitts stand at the center of this because they were the people in the original cybernetic circles, and Warren McCullough particularly, who sought to understand the brain not as a generator of mundane experience, but from a religious point of view, as the generator of theophany, as that one that allowed one to bear witness. He was a deeply, deeply religious character. And mm-hmm. uh, when, when Warren McCullough wanted to pursue a PhD, he walked into a supervisor, later supervisor's office, and the supervisor says, so what's your question? And he said, um, my question is, what is a number that man may know it, and what is man that he may know a number? Pure Pythagoras, right there. Pure Pythagoras. This is the origin of that. Now, the role of ones and zeros in mathematics can, can, and can, logic... Can, can, can you just back up? So, so, so... Yeah. Why was, why, I, I don't quite follow, why was this his concern? He was expressing the same concern that the Pythagoreans, that Plotinus, that um, many profoundly mathematical thinkers have had, which is to understand imminence, mm. the givenness of experience using pristine mathematical forms. This occurs in the mystical tradition. Nicholas of Cusa is a great example. Nearly all um, certain Christian mystics have drawn in some sense from notions of pure form to ground their unshakable attachment to imminence. Mm. We come back to Merleau-Ponty. I am not God, but merely lay claim to the divine. He's acting, he's speaking in that tone as well. Warren McCullough was one of these. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand 
why Warren chose to address the brain in this fashion. Mm. And we have trivialized this now by assuming that we know what nervous systems are doing, by assuming that we can measure. When we say brain activity, we don't know what the correct indices are or what is to be explained by that. We are all ignorance when it comes to brains. Now, I have my views on the brain as well, but I don't think we have a secure cognitive neuroscience. We have reasonably good wet neuroscience articulated in a medical and physiological register. Mm. But cognitive neuroscience, the, the interpretation of what things we know in that physiological register, not the same as the organismic register, but the physiological register, the interpretation of that in terms of what we want to talk about, about seeing and hearing and remembering and thinking and so on, is just... Uh, if you see the history, you're not as convinced that we have a secure grasp. Right, of it. right, right, right. The um, the mediation, the conversation between registers, then obviously is right. That's a nightmare, right? But when you think about that, do you have any any safe ground to stand on? You mean as our discourse shifts from drawing from one frame to another frame? Exactly. No, but sometimes it's useful to point things. Point out the limitations of a given frame. So, for example, ra-ra Western medicine. Western medicine is constructed, has a particular construction of the body, which is based on a lot of assumptions of what the body is responsible for. And it's great for a lot of lots of things. I'm not dissing that tradition at all. But everybody knows that there's things about your body that your doctor can't tell you. Mm. You are the first-hand inhabitant of your body. And while the doctor may be able to provide normative guidelines about how much cheese you should eat, for example, um, based on this particular physiological construction, there's an awful lot about your body and its being in the world that you would not trust to that. And in so doing, what you're doing is you yourself are placing a frame around that kind of knowledge mm. and acknowledging that you have other forms of awareness and understanding that don't fit into that frame. And nothing, when we have a frame, you don't expect everything to fit into a frame. That's the point of a frame. A frame delimits something. It says, within this frame, we can see this, that, and the other. Mm. But we don't live in a frame. We live in a body. Mm. Mm. I mean, one one attempt to, to think through um, some of this stuff, obviously it's constructed a bit differently, but is the, within the inactive, um, say, 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 domain at this point is the hands work, um, where she has this kind of integrative model, which she builds from, I guess she looks at the history of uh, psychotherapy and, and uh, psychiatry and so on and, and, and asks, um, Okay, well, we've acknowledged for a long time that there's psychosocial, psychosocial, um, biological uh, interaction. We've never really had a good account of how those things interact. Um, well, you, you're pointing there. Psychiatry has always had this problem, of course, and the fact that this um, terminological monstrosity, biopsychosocial model. <laughs> that's not a model, that's three frames. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Seneca's work is very interesting. She's 
rethinking psychiatry using some of the insights from the inactive tradition, which is useful in that it draws attention to the constrained use of an organismic register, and it draws attention to some things. But I, I must admit that psychiatry is a bit of a wilderness. Um, every manner of constructing a society will generate insides and outsides, mm. norms. Um, one thing that I think the this biopsychosocial thing can be partly assisted by the knowing application of the organismic frame which the inactive thought currents seem to encourage. What the inactive discussion doesn't get into are all the political, technological and social responsibilities that also generate these problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think you can be in psychiatry without being some kind of a warrior mm. um, because uh, there is no there is no mental health mm. because there's no mind as a distinguished entity the facile parallels of the mind and the body land us in all kinds of hot water in an action now we take the body as the organism which opens up some doors and is a very useful way of thinking and is also limited it won't work to explain everything about either giraffes or humans, but it is very, very useful. And that's why I see inaction as really useful here. But but when we're dealing with mental health, we are also dealing with the norms, with the cross that we make ourselves carry. Mm. A good example is the child who gets an, a, a diagnosis of um, hyperactivity because they don't like sitting still in the classroom. Right, Sitting right. still in the classroom is not something developed in an organismic register. Some kids are dancers, and you've got to let some kids dance. But if you insist that everyone should sit still in the classroom, then you've created a norm which creates a mental health problem. Mm. You see? Mm. Mm. Um, so, I, I, listen, inaction is feeling its way around many problems that we have. Thomas Fuchs is another good example of someone who has developed the inactive register as an active psychiatrist. And I'm only willing, really, I think the people who engage in discussion around mental health need to be informed about the problems of the area. People who don't know anything about psychiatry but regard it as a well-formed discipline need to spend a day in psychiatry dealing with the cold front, dealing with the behavioural problems, most people end up in psychiatric hospitals because other people can't stand them. Mm. Other people think they're anomalous or unbearable. That's why most people are in those registers. And psychiatric institutions and prisons have always traded off against each other. The organismic register is not going to help us out there. there is, there's an awful lot more lurking there. I've worked a little bit in psychiatry myself as a nurse, mm. and I'm um, so probably more sensitive than most to the complexities of of, of the the field. Yeah, yeah. When when you worked in that space, um, I'm sure you you found a lot of practices that you maybe found uh, distasteful or unwanted or unwarranted. Um, I have I, I have helped to hold down a patient while delivering electroconvulsive therapy. Mm. 
Electroconvulsive therapy is the administration of a uh, an uncontrolled electrical discharge through the whole brain. It's a it's the it's the brain equivalent of a severe kick in the pants in the hope that the bits fall back into a better pattern. It's an example of how ignorant we are about the organization of the brain and that we still need to do this sometimes. In that case where I did it, I believed along with the rest of the team that it was warranted and it had positive outcomes for this particular person under these particular circumstances. That shows you how ignorant we are. And the the pharmacological construction of psychiatry is nothing other than the same thing done with chemicals. Mm. Chemical straitjacket is one term people use. It's the non-specific intervention in the system in which which we don't understand, which is only ever guided by clinical competence, by experience with mm. what we might perceive to be outcomes and we have no idea what we are also killing with that. We don't have the authority to prescribe different forms of experience, anomalous experience, ecstatic experience, unusual, aberrant experience as pathological per se. What, what we're doing is grappling in the discursive realm, the, this intersubjective realm, that, this real world that we inhabit, where we interact with each other, we're trying sensitively to manage. Now, I'm not saying that we, I mean, psychopharmaca are essential. We, we, we can't get by without them. ECT mm. still goes on because we are so ignorant. Mm. Um, I think the popular tone of, particularly in which science journalism is conducted, gives no hint of our ignorance with respect right. to the body. right. right. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true. Uh, uh, this kind of brings us full circle again, right? To, 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 I think there's a set of issues, concerns here in, in you know, when we have these uh, kinds of conversations that do sharpen our, our desire, our needs to act, right? Uh, to, you know, engage in, in particular ways. Um, and I wonder for you if, if coming back to notions of embodiment helps in this particular space um, to sensitize us to the things that we should be sensitive to. And so, yeah. so, so you, you've kind of given, you know, made a critique of an action, right? And said, we speak in this or, or organismic register and it doesn't quite get us to where we want to go. But it's with, very important, but it's right. very important. So that's, yeah. To have I was wondering that in if, the armory. If you can kind uh, of, yeah. Well, I might sound pessimistic if I say we're ignorant, but, you know, ignorance is bliss. Um, if we're not ignorant, we will never learn. Um, recognizing that you are still groping towards adequate questions that can illuminate human being in the world is essential in order to improve questioning. And I'm going to come straight back to your work here at OIST and a recent project we were planning, which is not currently going to come to fruition. But you guys are investing at the moment in EEG hyperscanning. Now, EEG hyperscanning is not going to provide a clear index of anything. Um, EEG signals are dreadful. They don't... We, our ignorance about brains is fundamental. But 
with this, you have the opportunity of asking questions about the brain in situations other than the laboratory. Mm. As you know, we had suggested taking this equipment into temples. Yeah. So just um, maybe just for listeners, maybe give it a little bit of that backstory. Oh, it's, it's, it's an idea we've been kicking around, you and I and, and several people at OAST, with Tom, Tom very centrally involved. And the idea was to take advantage of EEG hyper, that is recording um, electrical fluctuations on the scalp that are vaguely indicative of something going on in that organ called the brain, <laughs> and doing so from multiple individuals simultaneously. This has become something of a great new direction in neuroscience, and I think it's very positive, which is the recognition that brains are not isolated consciousnesses, but that brains, like other parts of the body, synchronize, fall into coupling relationships, are entrained with each other. And we've begun to recognize that when people interact and do things together, their brains become non-independent, just as when we walk down the road, our legs become non-independent. It's not that surprising. Mm. And so what we were thinking was, well, where are those conditions in which this solely autonomous individual is maybe not so present? And here, because of where I'm coming from, I think of being swept up in the crowds. I think of being involved in a ritual, being involved in these identity producing activities like chanting um, that defy characterization in terms of autonomous individuals, but that are very um, indicative of the manner in which collectivities generate their shared worlds. And so simply seeing what non-independences, what forms of transient fusion arise under such circumstances with all respect to the context, to the wisdom of practitioners, to their embedding in their worlds. That seems to me like a excellent way to go but it, it's only a as Latour would say it, it's a preposition that's that's an orientation now you got to walk down that road and the develop questions and then work your way towards answers so in acquiring the ability to ask such questions i see you were in a decent position to begin a form of inquiry which might really sharpen our questions, relativize our understanding of the brain, and better help us link brain science to human living mm -hmm. in all its richness and variety. Mm. Yeah. Very good. That feels I'd, I'd fund us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd fund my own no, the trouble is, if, if you're a funder looking at this, you go, hang on, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> mm. We're trying to recognize what the problems are that need to be solved. We're trying to find an appropriate stance with which we can further inquiry into um, the production of human worlds from a human perspective in context treating the brain and body as um, topics about which we're ignorant. Mm. Mm. No. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, you, you, you got the gear and I'm pushing a little bit. Maybe this will change the way you ask questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah hopefully. I, I think uh, this is a really good place to start maybe winding down a little bit. 
Um, we've ranged over quite a diversity of topics, and I think we've. I'm sorry, we got we got into hot water at the beginning. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, is there anything you you know when I, what I I got used of interacting with you, Fred? Is I come to your office, maybe I haven't seen you for a while, and you have some exciting new thing that you really want to share and that's always fun for me so i'm wondering uh, if there is anything on your mind at the moment well as, as you know i run a, a small cognitive science program here and that's rather unusual and every cognitive science program is different because the field is so undisciplined and broad and ours is probably broader than most and i see the students who are attracted to this particular generous way of casting cognitive science and they've been changing over the last few years and some I find students are coming in with quite profound modes of questioning Mm. and underlying these are a few things one is obviously concern about a the the notion that Um, the public story of science is giving them about their future as part of a larger entity called humanity. So climate change, ecocide, um, the ravages of capitalism, the unsustainability of our current way of life are weighing on everybody. Mm. And they want to know, okay, I mean, none of us know how to do this. Timothy Morton tells us we've always been ecological. Yeah, great, Timothy, but (laughs) we're we're also having problems with the recycling. Um, So, so, That those questions are good because we don't know the answers and because addressing or engaging in our self-construction and our self-understanding with those in the background can change our self-understanding. And changing our self-understanding means that we can better mm. see ourselves in the world. And so this is an optimistic starting point and not a pessimistic starting point. Mm. It's one that is finite and ignorant but that doesn't accord ourselves a single determinate nature and hence a determinate future. If you see yourself as having a fully fixed nature, as fully formed, you have a single future. If you see yourself as being part of something larger called maybe humanity or maybe your family, I don't know, um, if it's fully determined, then it has a determinate future. But if that larger thing is also changing, and this comes back to what I said about self-understanding changing, but also collective understanding changing, Mm, mm. then this gives you a way to think that is not panic-stricken because the panic is starting to rise all around. Another interesting thing that's happened is the social controls on psychedelic research have been lifted. And many of our students have first-hand experience of psychedelics and want to know what's up with that. (laughs) And those are legitimate questions. Yes. Those are legitimate questions, and they're ones that also lead you to a dissatisfaction with overly mechanistic, pat-finished accounts of brains, of chemistry, of experience, and of being in the world. Um, I'm very excited that this space has opened up. I think the questions are very, very, very hard. Mm. Um, But I think it is possible to construct, to begin to construct questions I don't know about answers that are um, enriching, greatly, greatly enriching. I mean, it's in a well-worked out mode. Clearly, there's a role for psychedelics in 
therapy in treatment of depression and perhaps addiction and so on. That's in business as usual science. But in the broader question, people are asking questions in ways that are not being answered by a socio-technical finished view of science as the ultimate authority. Yeah, that's very, very And so they're coming to cognitive science to learn how to be ask better questions, questions that are reflective and that can help them to better understand their place in things. Mm. So those those are notable changes over the last few years. Maybe they've come about partly because I've changed as well. Um, I don't. I never know where students come from. Um, I know that I control admissions, so I ought to know where students come from. I'm the sort of gatekeeper here. Maybe my gatekeeping practices have changed, but it seems that people have been drawn to cognitive science with more questions than how do I improve my short-term memory. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, I think, is, that makes me very happy in my job. Yeah, yeah, since it's promising, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It does seem, I was in your course um, only... I mean, I left, it's, it seems re very recent, right? Because yeah, when I joined your course, I think we were more, obviously, you know, you have a certain stance that you've been developing for a while, but I think us as students, um, at least, at least the majority of us were coming with a, not that set of questions, right? The same, uh, sort of need, right? The same sort of, uh, I suppose breadth of questioning wasn't there necessarily for us. Um, well, I think it was. I mean, you didn't actually do my MSc in cognitive science. You did an MSc in consciousness and embodiment, showing that you were already running down this path as fast as you could. Mm, <laughs> You'd yeah. already targeted consciousness and embodiment as a as a jewel worth considering. Right, right, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, and you haven't stopped, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Fred. Um, is there, if you, I don't know if you want people reaching out to you, but if you do, is there any way that people should reach out to you? Oh, I'm always open. To, email me. Email me. I'm yeah. very happy to, to to chat about things. Yeah, and I don't have answers. So it's Fred Cummins at, at Gmail. At UCD.ie. At, UCD <clears throat> at UCD. And you're on Twitter too, right? I'm on Twitter, uh, F Cummins. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, get in touch with Fred. Uh, you can get in touch with me too if you want. So I'm Mark Michael James at Gmail, and uh, I'm not spending much time on Twitter these days. But if you do hang out there and you want to get me there, um, it's Mark M James. So thanks, Fred. We'll finish the recording, I guess. Uh, great to talk to you, and uh, yeah, maybe we can do it again, right? I I feel like we touched on a lot of stuff, and it was a really good uh, foundational. Um, you know, there, there was a there was a breadth, but there is still an awful lot of uh, very more specific questions that I think your insight would be interesting over well, you know in time. We we had spoken of this podcast as a as a chance to, for you and me to catch up. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it has reminded me of your visits to my office, where conversations would sometimes go on for hours and they would range yeah. very very widely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really useful way to talk and think. Um, I find it very useful as well. Um, and it's, as with music production, it's not all about shitting out an MP3. It's about the process of actually making the music or actually having the discussion. Right. Um, right. So, so thank you very much. And, and I would 
I, I like taking part in this kind of discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm want more of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we can keep it going. Um, let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks a million, Mark. It was very, very good. All right, Fred. <laughs>